Welcome to the Weekly Insight Podcast, where we break down the noise of the week and help you understand the psychology of the markets with your host, Andrew Dore at Insight Wealth Group. Good morning. Welcome to the latest edition of the Weekly Insight Podcast. As usual, I'm your host, Andrew Dore. I want to take a moment to just thank you for joining us and to remind you what I say every week, which is what you're about to hear today shouldn't be construed as individual investment advice, but instead as my view and our firm's view on what's going on in the broader economy. If you'd like to discuss how that might apply to you individually, we'd love to have a conversation. So with that, let's dig in. I, I want to start by apologizing. I screwed up last week. I forgot to hit send on the email to everyone that the podcast had been posted. So my apologies, you got it a little late. Please know that it will always be uploaded first of the week and available on any podcast service you have. But I'd encourage you to hit subscribe so you'll know right away when it hits. After it went out last week, finally, I got a note from a client. Actually, my partner, Andrew Kleiss, got a note from one of his clients. And they reached out regarding our discussion on the quote-unquote no landing scenario that was being discussed by so many over the last few weeks and something that I got a little feisty about on last week's podcast. And this client is a pilot, and he was talking about it in aeronautical terms, and he discussed a different term, what he called a go-around. And it's an aviation term, as he describes, when you're approaching the, the runway you're getting ready to land. You're always aware of what's going on around you. And if anything looks wrong, you can always choose to go around and try it again. And he compared that to what's happening in the economy today. And I thought that was such an interesting way of thinking about things, especially after this last week in the market. We had a great deal of fretting last week in the market. We saw some higher than expected PCE numbers. We saw a ramped up discussion of the Ukraine war with President Biden's visit and the anniversary and Putin's speech. There was a lot going on there. And then we saw growing expectations of Fed rate hikes over the coming months. And so it's been very interesting because what had been a very optimistic mood in January as we've gone through February here has turned a little bit less happy. But did the plane lose power? Did we shear off a wing? No. At best, we've, we've had a little bit of turbulence this month. And everyone hearing this, I would presume, has been on a plane that's gone through a patch of rough turbulence. And I'll be the first to admit, despite all the information that I may have as a passenger on a plane, to the contrary, I know I'm in a quality plane. I know I have a well-trained pilot. I know that turbulence doesn't crash planes. There is always a short-term negative reaction, right? There's always the tightening of the seatbelt, the gripping of the armrest, maybe a little bit of extra sweat on our brow. That is short-term bias. It's an immediate negative or, in, in good times, positive reaction to the stimuli that we are given, and the market was full of it last week. I want to address a few of those short-term concerns, those things that have popped up in the last few weeks, but I want to address them this week by taking a dive into what the real data says, what is underlying everything. So let's look at that. The first one we're going to talk about is consumers, and particularly this idea that consumers are running out of cash or that credit card debt is rising. There was a lot of noise this week about the rise in credit card delinquencies. And if you read any articles about it, the consensus was this, delinquencies are rising, consumers are out of cash, here comes the end of the world. The only problem is that the report that led to those articles, one put out by the New York Fed, it's something they put out every quarter, is 46 pages full of data. And it is not easily distilled into a short article 
or a podcast, but we all know the adage, right? If it bleeds, it leads. And so whatever the most negative version of the story we can find is the thing that is going to get the most clicks on the newspaper website. It's going to get the most clicks on the podcast. But what did the data really say? Yes, credit card delinquencies rose in Q4, slightly. But they are still well below pre-COVID levels. And total household debt delinquencies, they are at some of the lowest points we've seen since the great financial crisis. And I know I say this every week, but I've got a ton of charts in this week's memo that are going to be important to this conversation. I would encourage you to go look at them. But what you'll see is that we know that student loan delinquencies have gone essentially to nothing because no one has to pay their student loans right now. But we also know that mortgage loans are at their lowest delinquency rates that we've seen since going back to the early part of the century. We've seen home equity revolving lines at similarly low levels. We've seen auto loan numbers much better than we saw them coming out of 08, 09, 10, 11. But now credit cards, which have ticked up just slightly in the last quarter, but are still comparable with what we were seeing in 2016 and still much lower than we were seeing in the early part of the century before the great financial crisis. Foreclosures are another area the market has focused on. They've risen. The scary version is that foreclosures are at their highest level since the start of the pandemic. But the more realistic version, they are still at historically low levels. They are still lower than we have seen at any time going back to the beginning of the century. The same goes for consumer bankruptcies. Part of this conversation is tied to a chart and some data sets that I've talked about a lot in 2022 on this podcast, and it was the checkable deposits, the cash that consumers have on hand. That number is fantastically high right now. It's nearly five times the historical average. There is almost $5 trillion in checkable deposits in people's accounts right now, and frankly, that number last quarter rose again. That's the good news, but again, it doesn't tell the whole story either. It turns out that the top 80% of income earners are doing really, really well. If you're in that second quintile of income earners, you have 250% more cash than you had pre-pandemic. If you're in the the three highest quintiles, you have 500% more cash than you had at the beginning of the pandemic. Now, that may not be everybody listening to this, but that's the average for those quintiles of income earners. But it is a much different story for the bottom quintile. The bottom quintile now officially has less cash than they had at the beginning of the pandemic. This is where inflation sting bites the most. Those with the least income are the most impacted by rises in the price of food and gas and shelter. For those with more income, those marginal increases have a diminishing impact. That issue is, in a nutshell, exactly why the Fed has done what they've done over the course of the last year. And frankly, it's a good thing. It's a good thing that we're trying to help take care of those who have the least ability to take care of themselves. But it's also important to note the difference between the individual impact of inflation and the economic impact. Because the bottom 20% of income earners, that group that is suffering the most, also makes up the smallest amount of consumption in our economy. They consume less than 10% of our overall consumption. They are not the drivers of economic activity. They are not the drivers of economic growth. Those who are have been largely unaffected by the inflation we've seen. Their cash balances are still remarkably high. In whole, the consumer's in pretty good shape. But there's another issue. Companies, earnings. 
are companies driving into an earnings ditch right now? It won't be a surprise to my listeners right now that Q4 earnings weren't good. We've seen 94% of companies are now reported, so we're pretty much done with earnings season. And we will be almost entirely done after next week. And the overall decline on a year-over-year basis is 4.8%. If that holds, that will be the worst quarter since Q3 2020. It's important to remember that this wasn't a surprise. We've been expecting it. Analysts have long been expecting a fall in earnings for Q4. And while it's a little bit worse than it was expected, it's within the margins. The question, though, is whether or not this is a blip or if it's the start of something much more serious. So let's look at the numbers that analysts are saying we're going to see for the rest of 2023. According to analysts, we'll see a 5.7% drop in earnings in Q1, a 3.7% drop in Q2, a 3% increase in earnings in Q3, and a 9.7% increase in Q4. So when you wrap the whole thing up, analysts are expecting that earnings will grow by 2.2% over fiscal year 2022. That lines up a lot with what I've been saying on this podcast about the path of the broader economy this year. Volatility in the first half of the year as we deal with rising interest rates and inflation and more optimism in the back half of the year as we get through that process. But while you know the full year does not look great, right? 2.2%, we'd love better than that. It's really interesting when you look at the expectations analysts have for 2024 because right now the expectation is 11.5% earnings growth in 2024. And it's important for us to remember that the stock market is a forward-looking, a forward-pricing tool. So why, why do they have that optimism for 2024? I would argue it's because companies are better situated for the future than we sometimes give them credit for. Much like consumers, businesses took advantage of the low interest rates that we saw in 2020 and 2021. One of the reasons people have so much cash on hand right now is because they did do a good job of refinancing, especially their home mortgages, when interest rates were so low. Businesses did exactly the same thing. The result is that as rates are skyrocketing right now, what we're seeing is that there are very few maturities or refinancings that have to happen over the next two years. Again, another great chart I'd encourage you to go look at, but what you will see is that there's only about $43 billion in high-yield bonds and about $26 billion of leveraged loans coming due in 2023. That's a very small number. Now, those numbers creep up in 2024 a little bit, and they start to climb pretty rapidly in 2025, 6, 7, and 28 before falling again. There is a lot of debt coming due, in 2025 to 2028. But if you compare that maturity with where rates are expected to be, remember rates are supposed to start falling later this year or early next, I think that companies are going to be in pretty good shape to refinance their debt at much lower rates than we're seeing today. So this all lends to a much different picture than the short term, the plainness crashing approach we've been seeing lately. Yeah, the markets were down last week. They've been down this month. It hasn't been a lot of fun. But they are still up for the year, and the long-term future, frankly, doesn't look that bad. We do, however, need to be patient. And remember, there's good pilot in the seat, we're in a good plane, and turbulence doesn't typically take planes down. So with that, we'll end there. As always, I will just ask that if you have any questions, please feel free to give us a call here at the office at 515-273-1333, or visit us on the website at www dot insightwealthgroup.com. 
I hope you have a wonderful week, and I look forward to touching base with you again soon. Take care. Securities offered through Arate Wealth Management, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC, NFA. Investment advisory services offered through Arate Wealth Advisors, LLC, an SEC-registered investment firm.